Welcome to St. Martin Fields. Welcome to Great Sacred Music. Something slightly different this week for you, Great Sacred Musicals. A special welcome to those joining us online uh, as well. If th that song sounded familiar to you, it's probably because you spent the whole of the bank holiday watching Sister Act on a back-to-back -back reel. Uh, Sister Act is a story uh, about a, a person who finds themselves in a witness protection program being housed in a convent. And if you think about the basic structure of the story, it's a story about a stranger coming into a community that's not flourishing and that community coming to life. It, it's kind of an incarnational story, but it has a slightly different twist uh, because it, it's, um, what's the right word? It's, it's reciprocal, that's to say, uh, the person that's in the witness protection program is a very talented singer, but shall we say a loose liver, not the obvious person to find in a con convent, whereas the nuns may be very saintly in a slightly bitchy way, but, but, uh, but clearly their singing is suboptimal. So the combination of the two uh, is a remarkable experience, and even though the real plot of the film is what's going on with, with whether this witness is gonna be uncovered and whether she's gonna be safe and whether the criminals are gonna be brought to justice and everything. In a sense, from the uh, theological point of view, it's an interesting take on the story of the Gospels, an interesting take on the idea of a stranger coming into a community, energizing, releasing the gifts of that community and finding their own gifts redeemed and used in a positive way. So that's, that's what's going on in Sister Act, which is why we chose it as our first uh, first piece for you today, and we're going to choose a few of those, so just get ready for this. Um, anyway, it's our tradition at Great Sacred Music for us all to begin by singing together. We're going to sing uh, the spiritual Were You There that you can find on the inside of your sheets uh, in a few moments' time. Uh, Were You There is a many-layered spiritual, deceptively simple, as many of the spirituals are. Uh, of course, the question is really a question for the disciples, because if you remember, the disciples went to sleep in the garden, fled when Jesus was arrested, and weren't there, explicitly weren't there uh, at the crucifixion. So it's a, it's a lament that is a, a critique of the first uh, disciples, but the lilt of the music and the simplicity of the words are bringing us into the intensity of the action of the story. By the time we finished singing this, we feel like we were there. But then, of course, as with many of the spirituals, there is an extra layer of the heritage of slavery. This is being sung when it's first written by people whose experience of, in of um, enslavement is not 100 miles away 
from being crucified. It's not 100 miles away uh, from being taken down from the cross and laid in the tomb. They can identify as they're singing this profoundly with the words. And, and then I guess the last dimension is it's, a, it's not just a question about were you there, but will you be there? If you remember the, fi- the famous parable in Matthew chapter 25, uh, where Jesus says, when did, you know, when did you see me hungry? When did you see me thirsty? When did you see me a, sl- uh, um, a stranger or, or sick or in prison? Uh, that, the, you know, the, the, that, that parable is inviting us to say, I will be there wherever you are sick or in prison and so on. So in a sense that this uh, spiritual is leading us uh, from a, a criticism of those disciples 2,000 years ago to doing better uh, ourselves. Let's remain seated as the voices stand and lead us as we sing, Were You There?
Well, if you remember when Jesus Christ Superstar came out, you are even older than me, and that may be a serious problem. Uh, I can just about remember, but what I didn't uh, remember at the time was that the story of Jesus Christ Superstar and Andrew Lloyd Webber, Tim Rice, is a little bit like the story of J.K. Rowling in the sense that they offered this score to many, many promoters to put on in the West End and nobody was interested. So uh, not lacking resourcefulness or connections, they issued it as an LP, as a record, uh, in 1970. Uh, and it was a massive success, and so it did inevitably come to the West End in 1971, uh, and it became the longest-running West End musical of all until they wrote another one you might have heard of called Cats, which took over that mantle in the 1980s. It was also made into a film in 1973. It's a rock opera of Christ's passion, uh, but it mostly focuses on Judas, uh, an interesting new take on Judas as someone who, whose philosophy is basically this is all marvellous, but it's all got terribly out of hand. Uh, Tim Rice famously said, it happens that we don't see Christ as God, but simply the right man at the right time at the right place. So it was controversial in 1971 because some people didn't believe in the full divinity of Christ. Can you believe that? Are you shocked by that? No, there are such people still with us today. They're all over the place. Really, there's a lot of them. Anyway, that was considered very, very shocking in 1971. Makes it feel like a long time ago. Uh, many in the, the Jewish community uh, objected to the fact that all the baddies are Jews. Well... It's kind of the New Testament for you. I, I guess it doesn't focus so much on Pilate. Um, it was banned in Hungary because it was too Christian. Interestingly paradoxical since it wasn't Christian enough in this country in the United States. Uh, it's, not, it's not interested in the resurrection, rather like God's spell we'll come to in a moment. Uh, it just treats the crucifixion as the end of the story. But I guess what's, you know, the thesis of Jesus Christ Superstar is uh, this, this was a fantastically gifted and talented man, and it all got big on him. It went to his head, and it all got out of control, and it should never have become a religion or any of that, that stuff, and it wasn't really fundamentally to do with God. It's, um, it's an interesting thesis. It's not an thesis that's original to Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber. It goes back to the first century, but it's probably never been set to such dramatic and memorable music as this. Let's hear a sample.
Well, Godspell is slightly different from uh, Jesus Christ Superstar. The coincidence is that they both opened in the West End in 1971, which is extraordinary considering they must have thought suddenly there's going to be a deluge of uh, musicals about Jesus. That didn't really follow. These two remain uh, two of a kind in some ways, but their differences are as interesting as their similarities. If the motif of, of Jesus Christ Superstar is this was a mass, almost hysteria experience where one individual got completely carried away and got out of hand, which is, if you remember, pretty much the premise of the film The Life of Brian from a more ironic point of view a few years later, uh, then the premise of Godspell uh, is uh, that Jesus is himself a parable who tells a series of parables and Godspell is really about the experience, if you've ever had it, of joining a theatrical troupe of, of, of actors who, if you like, are traveling around uh, in, in almost a kind of medieval mystery play kind of way, and they're inviting you to enter into the imaginative world of the parable. So it's very much about Galilee rather than about Jerusalem. It's very much about story and playfulness and jesters and clowns and all of that turning the world upside down in your imagination. Uh, and again, like Jesus Christ Superstar, it's on to something really important. It's not like what it's saying is not there in the New Testament. Obviously, there's more in the New Testament than this, but it's a very provocative and stimulating experience to spend a couple of hours contemplating it. It started, extraordinarily, as a master's thesis by a young uh, student called Jean-Michael Tebelak, uh, and then it went all the way to Broadway. So anyone here who's writing a master's thesis, you never know. Uh, it is, in the end, the ultimate 60s gospel. It's not really interested in talking about death or resurrection. Uh, it's much more about that. What does it feel like to be the director? Who's directing this play? Who's the clown? Who's subverting it? Who's telling a joke? Who's turning upside down? Uh, here's a bit of slapstick comedy. Uh, and we've uh, chosen a, uh, one song from this, and, and what strikes me about this song, and you might reflect on, on this song, is it, it's about rebuilding after ruins. It's a resurrection theme implicitly, uh, but it focuses on this three-word phrase coming out of distress, distraught, distraught participants, focusing on this phrase, yes, we can. Where have you heard that before? I do wonder uh, whether Barack Obama got his ideas from John Michael Tebelak, see what you think.
Well, uh, one strange fact about Joseph and his Technicolor dream coat is that it was written before Jesus Christ Superstar, but nobody knew who Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice were. Can you believe it? Before Jesus Christ Superstar. So it, Joseph's Technicolor dream coat was like that novel that J.K. Rowling had in her back pocket that she'd already written, and when she became famous with the Philosopher's Stone, then she already had another novel already written, and, and Joseph's Technicolor dream coat was like that. It was written before, uh, but it was performed after, although it had been performed uh, at Westminster Central Hall. How did they manage to do that? Well, Andrew Lloyd Webber, as you may know, is the son of William Lloyd, Lloyd Webber, very influential organist and musician and composer, um, and he managed to get uh, also uh, a performance of St. Paul's uh, Cathedral, um, but it really didn't become uh, widely performed and performed in the West End till after the success of Jesus Christ Superstar. What's Joseph in his Technicolor dream coat about? It's not really about a dream coat. It's really about providence. It's the definitive story. It's, it's, it's pretty much the longest single story in the Bible. It goes on for about 18 chapters, more or less, 17, depending how you calculate it. It's a very long story. Uh, and it's fundamentally about how, even though it, through sibling rivalry that runs all the way through the book of Genesis, Joseph is rejected, almost killed, God uses that, his story of rejection, to bring salvation to uh, the Hebrews when they find themselves in hunger in Canaan. And of course, it's the essential prologue to the Exodus story by which they leave Egypt 500 years later uh, and come back. But it contains one of the most profound sentences in the Bible, which sums up the, the, the notion of providence, the doctrine of providence in one sentence. Joseph says to his brothers, once they finally made up and revealed themselves to each other, uh, when he talks about him uh, being almost killed by his brothers, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And it's an extraordinary thing to look back on uh, many of the most awful events in life and perhaps in our own lives uh, where we feel we have been hurt uh, and betrayed and think of it through the lens of that poignant phrase, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Let's hear a medley now of all the goodies from the Technicolor Dream Coat.
for us all to sing uh, again now and we're going to sing a hymn written in 1782 by the father of German popular journalism Matthias Claudius. Uh, some neighbours came to sing uh, a peasant song and he wrote it down and he also wrote Death and the Maiden for those of you who are Schubert fans and he came from Lübeck in Schleswig Holstein, not that far away from here. But we have this hymn because Jane Montgomery Campbell took his um, six four-line verses and made three eight-line verses of what no harvest festival would be complete without. We plough the fields of scat and scatter. She chose a nice German tune to go with it, and it popped up in the 1868 appendix to the original version of hymns ancient and modern. Why is that timing significant? Because the whole notion of a harvest festival was only invented in the late 1850s, and this is one of the first hymns uh, that was ready 
and waiting, oven ready, you might call it, uh, to be used at a harvest festival and no harvest festival would be acceptable uh, without it. Uh, it's also, you, many of you will also know that the hymn appears in uh, Godspell, in fact, in a rather finer version, I wouldn't mind saying, but we're not going to sing that version today. We're going to sing the traditional version. So we remain seated on the inside of the sheets. You'll find we plough the fields and scatter, and the voices are going to stand and lead us as we do so. Well, we're coming to the end of Great Sacred Music, Great Sacred Musicals. We've had a, a lot of fun today. I hope you have too, if you have, and you'd like to keep this great tradition going. There's an opportunity to make a donation as you leave in cash, or there's a swipe 
uh, instrument, you can swipe your card across, or there's text, or there's a QR code on the back of the sheets for those of you in the building too. Thank you in advance. Uh, Rogers and Hammerstein's first musical was, anybody? Oklahoma, you got it right. Uh, and their second one was Carousel, and it remained Rogers' favorite, uh, even though there were one or two others that followed it. Time voted it the best musical of the 20th century. It's fallen somewhat into obscurity. It's about a romance, surprise, surprise, a musical about romance. Have you ever heard of something like that? Um, one of them dies, and that's when this famous song is sung. Jerry and the Pacemakers, I guess, uh, in 1963, recorded the version that's best known, certainly in this country, and became the Liverpool FC Club song. Um, but if you think about it from a theological point of view, you'll never walk alone, those four or five words. They're pretty much uh, the epitome of the theology uh, of the Sinai experience in which God makes a covenant with Israel in the Old Testament. They're pretty much the epitome of the theology of the incarnation and the crucifixion and the resurrection and Pentecost for that matter. Uh, you can never stop reflecting on the significance of God saying to Israel uh, and to all God's people those words, you'll never walk alone. Thanks for joining us.